chapter 6. Not too long ago, my parents paid a visit to our family, and, and when they arrived, my mom was interested in what new things may be in the house, and so I kind of walked around and showed her some new pictures and, and some different things, and as we were walking around, my mom said, you sure have enjoyed this house, haven't you? We've lived in our home for about 12 and a half or so years, and when I was growing up, we moved quite a bit, and so uh, I've never been anywhere this long in a row, and I, I said, yeah, we really have enjoyed this home, and she asked me a question that kind of took me by surprise. She said, well, what do you like best about it? And I never really thought of it in those terms. I, I began to think, and I like the location of our home. I, I like our neighborhood. I, I like our neighbors. There's one guy I got my eye on, but for the most part, you know, they're all right, and I... I'm grateful for all of that, but really when I thought on it, it didn't take me long to come up with what I like best about our house, and it's the fact that my family lives there. And so I said, well, Mom, my favorite thing is, is our family lives here. There's just something about family, and it can make any place you are home. And I, I come to a text today where I'm excited to share with you that we're going to take a journey with Jesus Christ. He's making a trip from Capernaum, where he has been headquartering his earthly ministry, and he's going to walk about 20 or so miles to Nazareth, where he's from. It's a town where his mom lives, where his brothers live, his sisters, his childhood friends. And, and uh, the town where he did his occupation as a carpenter as he was growing up and in his early adulthood years. It, it was an exciting journey for him, I'm sure. Nazareth is a beautifully located town where uh, it was nestled in the hills and I had an opportunity to visit there not too long ago and, and today obviously more of a modern city but it's a beautiful place and, and as Jesus would have made this trip consisting of about 20 miles on foot I can imagine that had we been there the last few miles because of fatigue we would have slowed down but I also think that Jesus because he was going home he probably would have quickened the pace just a little bit going to see those people he cared about, going to that place that, that meant so much to him. And, and thanks to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and thanks to the faithfulness of Mark who records this all for us, we, we get to join Jesus on this journey and we get to see how it unfolds. And so if you're able today, I'd like to invite you to join me in standing as we look to God's Word. Mark chapter 6 is where we are today. We're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse and we're entering into a new chapter today. I'm enjoying this study greatly. I hope you are as well. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And he, speaking of Jesus, and he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such, a, that such mighty works are wrought by his hands. Is not this the carpenter's the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. I'm going to read on, but it's interesting to me that they were offended at Jesus Christ. You know, we live in a day where people seem to be perpetually offended. You know, this side's offended at this side and vice versa, and those in the middle are offended both ways and let me encourage you with a thought today, and it's much harder to do than to say, but let me encourage you with a thought. Don't give any person on this planet permission to bring an offense into your heart that's going to change the way you live your life. Nobody deserves that much uh, credibility in your life. 
Sometimes I wonder, why are we so easily offended and so easily hurt all the time? And and I think we're we're sensitive. There can be a good side to that. But I I want to encourage you with this thought. Don't give Joe a person, Joe average person in in your life, the opportunity to literally bring you down in that sense uh, by receiving an offense. The Bible does say, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. And I think many times when we profess an offense, many times I believe it's a tactic. Because if we're offended, there had to have been an offendor. And if we're the one that has received the offense, we can blame someone else. And I think many times it degenerates more into a tactic than, than to anything much beyond that. You know, you can be offended and still be wrong. That was the case here. These people observed Jesus Christ, his life and ministry, and they're offended at him. And, and certainly he was not an offense in that sense. So it's interesting they were offended at him. That wasn't even in my notes anywhere. I just threw that in for free. Okay, there you go. If it helps you, God bless you. If not, uh, well, whatever. We'll talk later, I suppose. Verse 4. And Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor. Now, we could stop there, and that's a true statement. A prophet is not without honor. Okay? But, here's the exception. In his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. Well, that's where Jesus was. He was in his own country with his own kin, his family, and in his own house. Verse 5. And he could do there no mighty work, save or accept that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. I want you, if you would, to go back to verse 1. We're going to find a statement in the midst of this verse that will allow to serve as the center for our study this morning. The Bible says in the midst of verse 1 here of Mark 6 that Jesus came into his own country. I want you to think of these three words, his own country, his own country. And because of the Bible, we get to travel along with him as he enters into his own country. And so we'll ask the Lord to help us in our study today. Lord, thank you that every word of the Bible is true, that we have an opportunity today to learn and grow. I thank you for the many good things you've already done this morning. But Lord, we need you now, again, in a fresh way. Help us. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Jesus made this trip from Capernaum to Nazareth on the heels of some amazing, amazing, miraculous events. We, we know that he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. We know that he cast out the unclean spirits and the man that lived in Gadara. We know that he has recently raised a 12-year-old girl back to life from the dead. It was an amazing, amazing time. Yet, as we read this, we see that his arrival home did not go entirely as we would have expected. We might have thought maybe a parade and banners and everyone would have been thrilled, but Jesus goes back to Nazareth, he journeys home, and the Bible says that as he went into his own country, they were offended at him. Now, as we take a closer look, a deeper look into this portrait of a family reunion, we gain some truths that really can't help us in terms of a relationship with God and and the life that He would have us to live. And and as we begin today, and I would encourage you to follow along in your notes, we're going to have some other scriptures that I'll be referencing that you'll find there. We're going to begin today by seeing a compassionate return. Now, as we've seen, Jesus here is traveling home. This is not the first time He's traveled home. It would be the last time. This is the last time Jesus is going to Nazareth to to see his friends and family in that setting. But there was a time before that, after his ministry had begun. 
And when he went home then, things did not go so well either. We read of it in Luke 4, verses 28 and 30. The Bible says there, And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him, Jesus, out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. When we were in Nazareth, we found there's really only one place in that community that you could call the brow of the city where someone could be thrust to their death. In fact, in that area, they refer to it in this day as Leap Mountain. That's what they refer to it as. But Jesus was brought to this place, and looking ahead, he would have seen Canaan. He looked to the right, he would have seen the, uh, the mount where uh, Elijah would have done his great works. But the people weren't there for a history lesson. They didn't want to hear from Christ. They didn't want to hear any truths from him or even see miracles through his life. The Bible says they took him there with the intent of pushing him off and, and killing him. Now think of that. That was the visit Jesus had to his hometown before the visit we're reading of in our text. How many of you like me probably would have remembered the way you were treated the first time and that would have had an impact on your decision whether or not you're going to go back? We tend to remember those types of things in life. I remember a Sunday morning years ago, I was in high school and the church I attended was an inner city church in Long Beach and and uh, I remember that day we had some uh, other teen type of guys, teenage type of guys that were in a gang and they visited the service that morning. And I remember they were kind of cutting up. And how many of you know everybody's welcome at church? And it doesn't matter where you're from, what your background is. I'm really uh, not interested in any of that. I'm just grateful when people come to church and, and everybody ought to be welcome. But for that reason, sometimes folks are not quite exactly sure what to do. And these kids were really causing a problem. I mean, they were talking, they were laughing, they were cutting up, and the youth leader in our church was just a tremendous guy, a volunteer. His door was just kind of open in his home for teenagers to come by. If we were there, he'd feed us. I mean, he and his wife were just great people, and, and, and his wife, she went over to these guys and welcomed them and then asked them if they would be quiet, and she did so in a nice way, and I'm watching all this, and I was surprised when they turned around right there in church and they cursed her out, and I thought, well, that's, that's you know, probably not a good thing to do. It's probably not good to do that anywhere, but right here in church, you know, I thought that's no good. And, and something started happening inside of me. I'm not sure what it was. I don't know if it was an evil spirit or the Holy Spirit, okay? But something inside me said, all right, Steve, you got to do something. And so uh, I, I went over there, and again, I tried to welcome them. I'm glad they're there. And I, I mean, really, if people can't come to a place where they can come to know the Lord and be helped, what good is that place? And so uh, I tried to be kind. And, and then I said, listen, uh, that, that lady that you just talked to, she's our youth leader's wife. She's a great lady. And I was trying to explain to them that's no way to talk to this lady, and they were having nothing to do with it. In fact, they, they shared some of the things they'd called her with me, and uh, no problem. I, I'd heard most of those words before. They invented a few, I think. I hadn't heard all of them, but, but uh, that, that wasn't a big deal to me. But I thought, all right, that's the way it's going to be. And, and the church service went on, and they, they cut up marginally. It wasn't that big of a deal. But I remember after the service, my friend Hector came to me, and he said, Steve, those guys are going to kill you. Now, I was hoping for a little hyperbole, a little metaphor, you know, uh, but, you know, by kill, are, you know, are you painting some artistic picture? What do you really mean by kill? And, and Hector meant they're going to kill you. Now, Hector later in his life did commit murder and ran to his home in Mexico and is there to this day, as I recollect. These were some bad dudes, okay? And he said, these guys are going to kill you. And uh, how many of you would prefer not be killed right there in church and all, you know? And uh, my folks, of course, were, were at church with me that day, and I thought, you know, I'd I would tell my dad, but I thought, first of all, he'd probably embarrass me to death, and I'd almost rather be killed than embarrassed to death watching dad try and get in there and, you know, do whatever dads do. And, and uh, so I thought, and the other side is he might get killed too, and then I'd feel bad about that. So 
I thought, you know, I'm just going to say goodbye to dad to at least give him a memory of me. <laughs> so and I went to dad and I'm just kind of giving him goodbye. And, and uh, he said, hey, take this to the car for me, would you? And he handed me a machete. Now, I've never so enjoyed taking something to the car for my dad in all of my life. It was a machete about that long. It had kind of a fork thing at the end. I don't know if it was for getting snakes or what it was, but, but uh, he said, take this to the car. I said, man, absolutely. I'd be happy to do that. He'd been to Costa Rica the week before. Someone had given it to him as a gift, and he said, walk us out to the car. So I'm walking out to the car. Sure enough, I'm walking. There are those guys. They continued to uh, share a few more of their uh, uh, words towards me and some of the invented ones I'd yet to come to understand, but you know, they cursed, they yelled, they hollered, but finally... Finally, they walked off and I, was just, I lived, by the way, for those of you that are wondering, I lived that day. But uh, I'll never forget that Sunday. I've forgotten a lot of Sundays in my life. But the thought that somebody wanted to kill me, that one's going to stick with me. I'm not going to forget that. And I can only imagine Jesus in the back of his mind. He's excited to go home. He's going to see family. He's going to see friends. But he's thinking, the last time I was here, they tried to push me off a cliff. Now, Jesus had an appointment with the cross, and this was not his time. And that was not his place. And he had that assurance. But as we evaluate this text, we must begin with a compassionate return. Jesus lovingly traveling home. But as we continue looking, we see a condemning rejection. Jesus joined them for the service at the synagogue. His friends and family were once again astonished, the Bible says, by his words. They were amazed at the testimony of what he had done in way of miracles. And, and they, they had all the evidence in the world before them to believe and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But they didn't. Now, now hear this, please. They had every good reason to hear the teachings of Christ and to receive him by faith. They had every good reason, but they didn't. The Bible says in John 1 and verse 11 that Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not the bible in verse 12 of that same text john chapter 1 tells us that that it's through receiving christ that we can know that we have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins he came into his own and his own received him not now if you were to ask me why didn't they accept jesus christ it's kind of like i get it but i don't fully understand it it's kind of hard to wrap my my mind around it they were so familiar with Jesus Christ and his family. They, they were so familiar, in fact, they found it kind of easy just to dismiss him. It's hard to comprehend. It's, it's really a decision they made based on prejudice, and that was, that was the fact of the matter. And, and although we would all understand to a degree what it is to uh, be prejudiced or to have prejudices, to live in a world that deals and battles with that, it's kind of hard for us to fully understand what would lead a mind to that conclusion. These people looked at Jesus, and this is what they said. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? You know what they were saying? Who does this guy think he is? Come marching back into town, want to sit in the synagogue and tell us how the cow ate the proverbial cabbage? Who does this guy think he is? He's just a carpenter. We know he just swings a hammer. We've seen him do that. I mean, there's honor in that trade. But really, to think you can sit up here and tell the rest of us how it is? We know who you are, Jesus. You're just a carpenter, just a common tradesman. We, we know who your family is. It's interesting to me. They were suggesting that Jesus was no better than, than they were and that he was reared in very much the same way and, and uh, uh, that he would not then be qualified to teach them truths, to teach them wisdom, as the text says. 
It's interesting to me there's no mention. In all of the family of Jesus, we meet Mary, the brothers, the sisters. There's, there's no mention of Joseph. Many people have surmised that it's probably because Joseph, by this time in the life of Christ, had died. And I do believe that's probably the truth. But I wonder if there was a more underhanded, more nefarious reason for their failure to mention Joseph. In other words, saying, yeah, Jesus, you were born from a virgin. Yeah, right. We know who you are. We know where you come from. We know what you are. No mention of his father. But you know what's interesting to me? The fact of the matter is what they knew the least about Jesus was who his father was. His father never was Joseph. Jesus is God the Son. And if you're the Son of God, that makes God your father. And what they thought they knew the most perhaps about Jesus was what they knew the least. What sets Jesus apart is the fact that he is God the Son How could they have missed that? Jesus played with them as children. He never lost his temper. He never got into trouble. He never told a lie. He had to be very annoying to hang around with, all right? You'd be getting in trouble all the time. Jesus never did anything wrong. And and they never saw him disobey his mother, never overcharge a customer in the family carpentry business. They never saw him do anything wrong, yet they rejected him summarily. It's amazing. A condemning rejection. But as we continue to look at this text, Jesus answers it all with a concerning response. I want you to look at verse 4 as we see this response that should be concerning to us all. Jesus, Jesus says this, A prophet is not without honor, but, or except, in his own country, among his own kin, and in his own house. I heard a saying years ago that says, Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. How many of you heard that, that statement or something like it? Good, I think many of you. Familiarity breeds contempt. And I know what we mean by that, and I think to a degree there's a way in which that can be applied. There is some relevance to that statement in our lives. But really, when you think about that, familiarity, it breeds contempt. It's an, it's an interesting statement. Uh, imagine a husband and wife, and they've reached 50 years of marriage, and the husband's talking to his wife, and he says, Honey, after 50 years of marriage, I, I, I've come to know you so well, I'm so familiar with you, that, that as we cross this milestone of, of our 50th anniversary, I want you to know because of the familiarity I have for you, I have great contempt for you, and, and I don't like you anymore. It's like, that's not the way it should work, you know? Imagine two friends and one saying to the other, I've gotten to know you so well over the years and you've been there for me through thick and thin and and you really have been a great friend and because we're such close friends now, I hate your guts. It just shouldn't work that way. An author I like to read named Philip Brooks says this, he said, familiarity breeds contempt only with contemptible things or among contemptible people. And these were contemptible people and that their familiarity with Christ bred a contempt in their heart. They, they, they rejected Jesus and really their, their rejection of Jesus says nothing about the quality of Jesus Christ. It says a great deal about their hearts. I recall the story of a tourist visiting an art gallery, and as he walked through, he looked at the various paintings and works of art, and as he went through, he he saw them, and he came to the end, he was preparing to leave, and the curator of that museum just happened to be standing there, seeing this this man leaving, and he he said to him, he said, I hope you enjoyed our museum today. The man kind of rudely and abruptly said, I didn't see anything all that special here. The curator, he said, sir, our works of art are not on trial here. Our guests are. In other words, he was saying, There's no disputing the reality that these are some of the finest pieces of art that you'll ever see. He said, really, it kind of reveals that maybe your palate for things like that is a little lacking. 
And you know, whether we receive Jesus or reject Jesus, that's not going to validate or invalidate who he is and what he has done. Jesus is God the Son. And, and these people, they miss that truth. I think of Psalm 14, 1, where, where the Bible says this, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. I looked that word fool up, and it refers especially, this is the definition, especially to the man who has no perception of ethical or religious claims. I thought that was interesting. The fool there is the one that has no perception of ethical or religious claims. That's a textbook definition. It means this. They refuse to see things for what they are. And we all can do that. I think an example of that is this place in which we're living. Uh, I think of California, specifically Southern California, our area. How many of you know it's got boatloads of problems? I mean, we've got a lot of problems. Um, our state and local government seem to habitually send, spend more than they bring in. That, that can be problematic after a while, you know. I think all the world's coming to grips with that. Well, I don't know if we are or not. We should be, right? Um, seems like everybody's getting stuff and benefits and perks and payouts and all the rest, except for the people paying taxes. And after a while, that could be problematic, right? I mean, I think we understand that. If your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep will be your downfall, right? So we got a lot of problems. I don't want to bury my head in the sand. We, we've got problems. But what an awesome place to live. And not many places in the world. You got breakfast on the beach. You can have lunch on the slopes and have dinner out in the desert. I mean, this place is not bad. Every time I have an opportunity to get away, I'm always glad to come back. I kind of like it. I love our area. I like the people. I love the attitude. I love the demeanor. Uh, I don't know where some people kind of get the idea. Sometimes the Californians aren't polite or kind. I've got to tell you, I think some of the greatest people I've met in all my life are here. Not to mention, there's a, such a cross-section. People from everywhere around the world, across America. I like it. I like the ocean. I like to look at it. I like it when we have one of those days where you get a, a cold rain that evening, that snow in our local mountains, and you can look at the ocean looking one way, look at the snow looking the other way. Here's the point I want to make in all of this. It would be possible to live here and only dwell on the problems and never take an opportunity to look at the ocean and really appreciate it or look at the mountains. I think you understand what I'm saying. Familiarity can breed contempt. We can get to such a position in life where all we do is dwell the negative, dwell the bad, and, and it can totally have an impact on the way we view things. The response of Christ was concerning because it represents a battle we all face at times. It is entirely possible for a blood-bought child of God to lose the wonder of it all and to fail to appreciate who we are in Jesus Christ. It reminds me of Paul's words to the Galatians where in Galatians 1 and 6, Paul said this, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that, that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. What was Paul saying? He said, I can't believe it. You came to a saving understanding of who Jesus Christ is. You received His grace. You placed your faith in Him. You were on fire for God. We might say in our vernacular, you were living for God, doing those things that Christians do, and then, and then now you're removed from it all. What gives? How could you walk away from someone who's as wonderful as Jesus Christ? Paul said, I marvel at that. It's amazing to me that anybody could claim to know Jesus and live as though they didn't. It's interesting. Perhaps we need to join in the prayer of David as he prayed in Psalm 51 and verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Listen, friends, what a tragedy it would be to take the most precious relationships in life for granted. 
whether that be in our marriages, whether that be with our children, whether that be with our friendships. But listen, most of all, our relationship with God. Because we're not going to get right this way with one another until we're right this way. And so really we see this statement from Christ that it should be concerning to all of us. But as we come to the concluding thought in our study today, I want us to see the controlling result. The controlling result. Now, these closing words, I believe, should be shocking to us. They should get our attention. In verse 5, the Bible says that he and he could there do no mighty work. Now, listen, Jesus made this trip with love in his heart and grace to give, the capacity to heal, the capacity to forgive sins. As we've seen recently, he could raise people from the dead even. It was a compassionate return. Jesus went there with love in his heart. Yet the Bible says that Jesus couldn't do any mighty works there. He couldn't. Now, let me ask you something. What power is so great, so enormous that it could prevent the power of God? Many would wonder, what what power is there in the entire world that would prevent the work of God? And the answer to that question is found in verse 6. We know in verse 5, you could do no mighty work there, but in verse 6, it says that Jesus marveled. He was surprised. He was shocked because of their unbelief. Think of that. Jesus was shocked. He, was mar- uh, he marveled at their unbelief. Only two times in Scripture do we find Jesus shocked like this. Only two times. And the first time we find him is in Matthew 8 and verse 10. The Bible says there, when Jesus heard it, he marveled. And he said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. So Jesus, the first time we find him shocked like this, it's at faith. It's at great faith. He's blown away. He's amazed. He's astonished. He did marvel. And the second time we find him marveling is not at faith, not at great faith, but at unbelief. Friends, did you know every one of us, whether we like it or not, every one of us makes a decision about Jesus Christ? There's no sitting on the fence, there's no ambivalence, there's no middle of the road. It's accept or reject. And unbelief isn't just kind of some, you know, catatonic state where we're just kind of floating in the middle trying to figure it all out. No, listen, if, if we have not received Jesus Christ, we've already, in essence, rejected. Now, we still have time to make that decision. As long as we're breathing, there's hope. I'm thankful for the grace of God. But, but I want us to understand that if we have not accepted Jesus Christ, that's unbelief. It's not passive. It's very active. Just as assertive and powerful as faith is, unbelief is the flip side of that. And the Bible says that Jesus went there with the intentions, no doubt, of doing a mighty work, but he couldn't because of unbelief. It's an amazing statement. It's the principle that we find in Matthew 9, 29. The Bible there says it this way, according to your faith, be it unto you. Our faith or lack thereof can limit the power of God in our lives. The town of Nazareth had an opportunity like none other, but they missed it all because of their decision to live in what the Bible calls unbelief. Now, listen, I don't know about you. I I need all the help I can get from God. I thank God for my family, but I I know this. I've never been 
alive on this day before, and I need to know how to be a husband to my wife and a father to my children. I, I want to be used of God to be a helpful pastor. I don't want to waste your time or my own. I, I, I need God in everything I do, and I think many of us would, would say, absolutely, I feel that same way. Well, I want you to understand this. There may be times where God has every intention of doing something special, something unique, something blessed, something wonderful in our lives, but if we're living in unbelief, He can do no mighty work there. And the Bible makes it crystal clear to me that without Christ, I can do nothing. I desperately need the work of Jesus Christ in my life. I desperately need a mighty work. And if I'm living in practical unbelief, he'll do no mighty work there. You see, the just are saved by faith, but we're lived by faith. The Bible says we're to walk by faith, and Jesus extends everything we need to us in life, but the basis of acceptance is always faith. Can you imagine having something valuable offered freely to you, only to reject it? I don't think that we would intentionally, but you never know. In Pennsylvania, during 1829, George Wilson was convicted of mail robbery and murder. He was sentenced to death. There's a long story there. I've told some of this story uh, before, how it was brought to this point, but, but President Andrew Jackson actually extended a pardon to George Wilson. He refused to accept it. So the question was, what do you do with someone who's been extended such grace, but they won't, refu- they won't receive it? They're refusing it. Well, people bantered about, finally it went to the Supreme Court. Chief Supreme Court Justice John Marshall made this ruling, and I'm quoting now from from his record on this case. He said, a pardon is a piece of paper, the value of which depends upon its acceptance by the parties implicated. It's hardly to be supposed that one under the sentence of death would refuse to accept a pardon. You catch that? He said, I can't believe anyone would not accept a pardon. He said, but if it's refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must hang. You see, Jesus Christ in his love has extended a pardon to all of us. But it is no pardon to us if we don't receive it. And the way we receive God's work in our lives is by faith. You see this Grace He extends to us is powerful enough to save us of our sins and assure us of a relationship with Him that will last forever in heaven. But if we reject His offer, we have made a decision. And I don't like to talk about it. You don't like to hear about it. But Jesus talked more about it than He did about heaven. The reality is, if we don't accept Jesus Christ, we don't just miss out on eternity as our eternal home. If we're going to believe all the words of Jesus... We have to realize he spoke more about hell than heaven. And if we refuse to receive the pardon he's extended to us by way of his grace. We're putting ourselves in a position where we don't want to be for all of eternity. And Jesus is saying, listen, I've come to you. I want to I want to bring life. I want to bring abundant life, he says in John 10, 10. The people of faith, we find a daily offer from Christ to enjoy the day with him. He offers wisdom and guidance and joy. And if we choose to go it alone in life, we lose out. But if we accept his offer, we'll find what the Apostle Paul wrote about in Philippians 4 when he talked about peace that passeth all understanding. You see, Jesus has walked into all of our lives just as he walked into his own country. I wonder, how will you receive him? 
Now listen, I'm not asking how have you received him yesterday or 10 years ago or when you were a child or whatever. Today, his mercies are new every morning, you know. I, I, want, I want to know, how will you receive him today? Our Father, we thank you that we have a great testimony of you 